Over the past six weeks, like Israel, we too have been camped at the foot of Mount Sinai learning about the Ten Commandments. We, we must not, as we are studying this, this book, particularly this chapter, chapter 20 in Exodus, we must not forget that these laws that we are studying, um, they, these laws existed before they are written down on these stone tablets. And we must not forget as we study these laws, all that has happened to Israel prior to God giving these laws to them. Because in all the events leading up to the giving of the Ten Commandments, there is this, in the background, this wonderful shadow, this wonderful reality of grace. Particularly the gospel of grace. And although it's Old Testament, the, the gospel screams loudly in the book of Exodus. The gospel, the good news of, of Jesus Christ, which obviously is clear now in the New Testament, it still exists in the background. The law in Exodus 20 is given to Israel after after she had been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Grace had been revealed to them through God's deliverance, his presence, his provision, his, his protection of them as they're led out of bondage into this new life of, of freedom. And so these laws that, that they're being given, um, these are laws that, that we know um, had an impact on Israel even before these Ten Commandments. But now we see here God specifically giving them these laws for their care, their protection, because they have been delivered by grace. These laws aren't given to Israel as a way of them earning God's favor. God's favor has been all over Israel from the very beginning. God's grace has been abundant to Israel from the very beginning. And, and as these laws are given, this is just God in another way, making himself known to this nation, making himself known in a way where he's revealing his love for them, his grace for them. And so as we, we study these laws, the purpose of, of us studying these laws is for us to, as God intended, like Israel, to to obey these laws, but also to learn to take delight in these laws, to, to love these laws. Uh, Psalm 119, which you are all so familiar with, David writes at the very beginning, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You, have, you, Lord, have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. And then David cries out, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, so I, statutes, so I now shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. That is, that is the, the foundation of this. And so this morning, as we are making our way through the Ten Commandments, we find ourselves camped in chapter 20, verse 13, the Sixth Commandment. And it is simply this. You shall not murder. 
you shall not murder. Before we go further, let's pray. Father, thank you for the life that we receive from your word. Lord, your word sustains us. It sustains us in our faith in you. It sustains us in our relationship with you. It sustains us in our trust in you. It sustains us in our life together as a church. Your word keeps us. And we pray this morning that your word would keep us once again, keep us close to you, that we might draw near to your presence through the preaching of your word, through the study of your word, through the meditation of your word, through the delight we take in your word. And may your word be a delight to everyone in this room this morning. Oh, Father, let it be a delight. Let everyone here rejoice in the truth of your word for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now, although just four words, this commandment has broader application than what it might seem at first. This passage is more than a prohibition against violent criminals perpetrating murder. It is not reduced down to just that. It is about, this commandment is about preserving the glory of God's name by preserving the community into which he placed Israel. That's one of the reasons why this commandment exists. It's also about preserving God's glory in those who uniquely bear his image. This morning, we have some questions to ask and answer so we can understand the importance and the power of this commandment. And so the first question is, and it's actually two questions I've put together, simply this, what is murder and why is it wrong? What is murder and why is it wrong? Genesis 9, 6 says this, whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Humanity, humanity bears God's divine image. Murder is the destruction of those created in his image. That, that, is, the, that is the foundation of this passage that we are to protect those made in the image of God. And it's, it's a phrase that is used again and again. I was thinking about this this morning. I was just thinking we, we've e- we easily just say, yeah, we're made in the image of God. But, but the, the truth and the reality and the depth behind that statement that we are made in the image of God. We bear God's image. We reflect God's image. We reflect God's glory. We reflect God's truth. We reflect who God is. We bear his image. This is why this commandment exists. Because God, God knows the human heart. He knows our temptation to 
to ruin that image. As we saw in the garden, we, he knows that temptation to bear, to be the judge and the decider of human life over and above his sovereignty. And so this commandment, you shall not murder is God's designed to protect those who bear his image. Now, death, death is a tricky subject. Our culture avoids talking about death. We use a lot of euphemisms to describe death. So we don't simply say he's dead or he died. We use euphemisms like he, oh, they passed away. Um, they went to a better place. And, and you know, on and on, it's because it's an uncomfortable subject. And so we avoid talking about death. And yet with all the avoidance of death talk in our culture, um, in the world that we live in, there exists this other side that we accept and even celebrate a culture of death. And we do it through movies and television and video games and decisions about the value of human life. So on one side, you've got this avoidance. On the other side, you've got this celebration of death. And the casual portrayal of violence and murder has become normal in the entertainment industry in particular. But the dignity and the sanctity of human life throughout our culture has been marginalized and even rejected in some circles. A medical professor named Malcolm Potts said this. He said, we can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul. Once this religious mumbo jumbo has been stripped away, we may continue to see normal members of our species as possessing greater capacities of rationality, self-consciousness, communication, etc. than members of other species. But we will not regard as sacrosanct the life of each and every member of our species. And then Dr. Peter Singer, who was or the professor of bioethics at Princeton University said this, those who are cognitively impaired, whether as a result of congenital condition, a degenerative disease, or as a result of accident or injury, ought not to be regarded as intrinsically equally valuable human beings along with the rest of society. If that were true, my autistic granddaughter Kate would not be alive today. That is where society has drifted. And they drift more and more into this way of thinking and evaluating the worth of human life. Look back over the 20th century in particular, and you can chart how society has come to believe that things as abortion and euthanasia and suicide are acceptable. And in Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. God wants us to protect and wants to protect Israel from the ravages and the destruction of this sin. The disregard for human life. To that end, in this verse, he addresses murder, which again is simply defined as this. Let me give you what I've tried to reduce down to a simple definition of murder in this passage. The destruction of those created in the image of God. 
the destruction of those created in the image of God. Now, let me give you the couple of the questions from the Westminster Catechism to help you understand the broad scope because murder here and, and as we see as we move through Scripture and we help interpret this passage with other passages, we see that murder isn't just simply the violent taking of someone else's life. There's a broader application. So the first question, what are the duties required in the sixth commandment? And the Westminster Catechism says this, the duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices, which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any. By just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat and drink and medicine, sleep, labor and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient, bearing and forgiving of injuries and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed and protecting protecting and defending the innocent. Those are the duties. That's the, that's the positive side of the sixth commandment. But then the Westminster Catechism goes on to say, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except cases of public justice, lawful war, or the necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preserving a life. You get that. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distractive cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. And so you see these four words in this sixth commandment, you shall not murder, have broad application to the life of Israel and to our lives as well. If you ask most people today, if you ask them, they will tell you murder is wrong. What they often don't see is the broader application to this commandment of how murder covers so much more than a violent moment. So, what is murder? We've described that. The second question is this. How does you shall not murder apply to Israel and to us? When we initially read this commandment, I would think most of us, myself included probably experienced some relief that this is one of the commandments we haven't failed at. We haven't murdered anybody. And if you ask most in society, they would say the same thing that, Oh, that's, that's one commandment. I've not failed at. I'm, I'm actually, I got at least one out of 10, 10%. That's not a good batting average, but it's at least I'm hitting something, you know, and it's, it's good. But the relief that we might feel, I would hazard a guess that the comfort we take in believing that we've kept this commandment 
uh, is because we don't understand this commandment. Like the rest of the law, like the other nine commandments and the, the law of God, the sixth commandment is a lot harder to keep than it first seems. A lot harder. Most people don't think of themselves as murderers. Yet as we move forward from Mount Sinai here and, and we move all the way over to the New Testament and to the book of Matthew, we discover there's much more to you shall not murder than the physical death of another person. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus' sermon on the mount Verse 21, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. So Jesus is quoting back Exodus twenty thirteen: You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to hell. Now, doesn't that broaden our understanding of the sixth commandment of Exodus 20, 13? The Heidelberg Catechism explains it like this, explains the sixth commandment. I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds. And we're All of us would amen the, oh yeah, by deeds, we're not to murder, but the thoughts, words, the gestures. So rather than being one of the easier commandments to keep, it actually becomes one of the hardest commandments to keep. Let's be brutally honest with ourselves. Most of us in this room will never kill another one, another person physically, but we can at times assassinate others with our words. We murder in our hearts through envy or jealousy or bitterness or anger or unforgiveness or hatred and revenge. We may not murder physically, but we can do it internally. We can do it in our attitude. First, John 3.15 says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's pretty blunt. And that's what Jesus is getting at in 521. And it's what the Lord is getting at in in 2013. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Sinclair Ferguson said this, For Jesus to kill with a knife or to engage in character assassination through anger or to belittle another by calling him a fool is part and parcel of the same spiritual sickness. Clearly, he does not mean that it makes no difference whether we gossip or stab, but he does mean that both activities reveal the same animosity of heart to our neighbors. It is not only in the sordid muckraking of elements of the media that such public assassination takes place. It is not unknown among professing Christians. In the spirit of the Pharisees, they wrongly assume that they can retain clean hands by ruining someone's reputation with the word under the cover of getting at the truth. How often have you heard that? I'm just speaking the truth about them. And in the process, their reputation 
and their lives are destroyed. We all know the expression, if looks could kill. I had a second grade teacher, Miss Ficarota. The name alone, she was the wicked wicked witch of second grade. She did not like me. She told my dad she did not like me. And she would give me looks that could kill. Finally, one day she got so fed up with me, she put me in the hallway. And so I did what most second graders do. I went home. (laughs) After that, I think Miss Ficarota would have wanted to kill me because it got her in a lot of trouble. Her looks. and, And that's, and that's how we communicate what's in our hearts. How about when you go by somebody who's been driving five miles an hour in a 35 mile an hour zone and you finally get to go by them? Do you look at them? And if you're laughing, you do. (laughs) Or people in the checkout line who the cashier is taking forever. One potato, two potato. And the looks that you're giving that cashier from way back in the line, you know, that kind of. (laughs) Or the way moms just simply look at unruly children when they're waiting in line at the grocery store. And those looks could kill when they get home. Oh, if, if looks could kill. But it's not just looks that kill. It's our words as well. Proverbs 12, 18 says this rash words are like sword thrusts. You get that rash words are like sword thrusts, which is another way of saying our words can be used as a weapon to injure and to kill. And how prevalent that is in our day and age with the advent of of the internet. Now I, I am, I'm a huge fan of John Newton, the writer of amazing grace. And I've read his life story and I'm reading through a, a, a 4,000 page volume set of four books that just tell, tells his life story. And I love, I love the way he communicates. And he, there's one book he's written and he's writing letters to a young man who has become a pastor and he's, he's mentoring this young man. And, and one of the things that I notice in the book, this is, this is in the, the 17th century. I noticed that th- they, they had an internet in their day. They just called it the printing press. And when they wanted to excoriate somebody, they wanted to slander somebody. They wanted to gossip about somebody. What did they do? They just put it down on paper and then they printed out all these pamphlets and they sent them out by the thousands about an individual that they disagreed with theologically or they disagreed with in practice. And so they would ruin reputations through that. We do it now through the internet, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the like. Lives and reputations that have taken a lifetime to build have been destroyed. They've been assassinated in the push of one send button. In an instant. And it has become, sadly, it is a lawless land with anonymous assassins running around assassinating many. 
And this commandment screams loudly at that. Stop! You are destroying what has been created in God's image. You shall not murder. Gossip and slander is character assassination. And this verse applies directly to that. Belittling others is murder from the heart. Demeaning others is murder from the heart. Slandering others is murder in the heart. Gossiping about others is murder from the heart. This is why Jesus is so blunt in Matthew 5, 21. He uses language that we can easily understand. Are you angry with your friend? Do you belittle him? This is such a serious sin. He says here, it is worthy of the hell of fire. That's how serious this commandment, this sin is to the Lord. Because it is his people who are being ruined and destroyed. Those who have been created in his image, who bear his image and bear his glory. And what you realize it or not, it diminishes the glory of God. It undermines the glory of of God. It is, and it goes on, Jesus goes on and says in verse 23 of, of 521, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, look, if there's this enmity between you and someone else, there's this anger in your heart, they're offended with you or you are separated from them, the Lord would say, I would rather you not be sitting here this morning. Go and make things right before you come and stand before me as though you have clean hands and a pure heart when you're harboring anger and resentment and bitterness in your heart towards somebody. Now, that's not some excuse to leave Sunday meetings. And, oh, I, yeah, I was angry with somebody, so I decided to go out to breakfast this morning. No, 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 that's not what I'm not, that's, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the seriousness of this sin, the seriousness of this commandment, God, in God's eyes is, look, I, I, want, you, I want you reconciled. Or I want you at peace, even if you're not in agreement. You don't have to be in agreement to be reconciled. Do you get that? You can be in disagreement and still be brothers and sisters in Christ who love and care and speak well of one another. We just live in a world of such divide that if you don't agree, you are enemies and nothing else. God would rather have you leave Sunday gatherings and go make things right before you stand there singing and bringing him an offering of praise. Hanging on to things like unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment and anger and hatred and thoughts of revenge. That is what he wants to stop. Do you think you're so far removed now from morally from those who murder? I mean... Have, have you not at some point hated? Have you not at times been angry and resentful and bitter and vengeful? Have you, have you not gossiped or, or slandered? Or have you not at some point used your tongue to subtly destroy or ruin another person? 
Brothers and sisters, I think we're all troubled and guilty of doing this. D.A. Carson said this. He said, these verses make one great point. The Old Testament law forbidding murder must not be thought adequately satisfied when no blood has been shed. Rather, the law points toward a more fundamental problem, man's vilifying anger. Jesus, by his own authority, insists that the judgment thought to be reserved for the actual murderer in reality hangs over the wrathful, the spiteful, the contemptuous. What man then stands uncondemned? What man? What woman? No one. Now, is all anger wrong? No. Anger towards sin and injustice is appropriate. We see that in scripture. It's anger towards another that Jesus condemns here. Jesus doesn't forbid all anger, just the anger that comes out of our personal relationships. Our, our problem is that we can, we can burn with indignation and burn with anger, not at sin and injustice, but at someone's offense against us. Jesus was angry at sin and he was angry at injustice, but never at those who unjustly arrested him and unfairly convicted him and unceremoniously beat him and mocked him and spit on him and crucified him. Peter tells us in Acts that he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Rather, rather with the most Gracious words as he hung on a cross. He uttered these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. If ever there was a justification for anger and wrath, it was there. And Jesus has led the way for us. We are I, I know I am. We are so quick. We can be so quick to be angry when we are personally offended. Oh, and we can be so quick. We are so quick to be merciful to ourselves when we offend. This verse, you shall not murder, wants us to be aware of how powerful words are to either hurt or to heal. Proverbs says that a word aptly spoken or in a timely manner, words aptly spoken are like apples of gold in settings of silver. The right words at the right time rather than if looks could kill. Now, what are the consequences of breaking this commandment? Because this commandment does a great job of revealing the depravity of the human heart. James 3, 7 says this. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restful, restless, evil, full of deadly poison. Words can kill. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. 
grudges, comments that slight, thoughtless words, retaliation, bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, anger. Destroy those created in the image of God. And when, when we break this command, we bring shame to God's glory. And we bring shame to God's community. And we bring destruction to our own spiritual health. James is right. We cannot tame our tongues. And because we can't, right here, we are, we are condemned and we are cursed and we are destined for an eternity that Jesus spells out clearly in 521. The law, the law does what it is intended to do for our good. The law exposes our hearts in all their ugliness. In all their depravity, it shows us our true condition before God. And even the most respectable among us are laid bare by God's law, by the truth of God's word. Because we are all breakers of the sixth commandment. Maybe not in physical deed, but assuredly in word. And that is why we need saving. That is why we need salvation, don't we? Don't we? we? We would have no hope except for Jesus who came into our world and faced the very same, temp- same temptations we face to, to be offended and angry. He, he did. He walked through all of that, mocked and ridiculed, reputation destroyed. But never once. Did he break this command? Never once. Jesus held his tongue and he guarded his heart. Brothers and sisters, without Christ, we are condemned. Our hope is found in Christ. No one ever kept this commandment perfectly except Jesus. He never used his words to hurt or kill. He never reviled when he was reviled. He used his words to create, not to destroy. As he hung on the cross at Calvary, he was crushed and he weighed down by the burden of our sin and down by the burden of our guilt and suffered for our sins. And he said the only words that could save us from God's condemnation, God's judgment and God's wrath. He said, Father, That's what he did for us. That's what he did for the lawbreakers of the sixth commandment. He used his words to forgive that we might be forgiven. His gracious words of grace led to our salvation. And each time that we get angry today, each time that we use our words to destroy, each time we sin against those created in the image of God, We break this commandment. Each time we do. God has told us this. If we confess our sins. If we run to him. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. To extend grace to us. He is, he is grace, gracious to give us the grace to live in a manner that we don't have to break 
this commandment. The Christian gospel of grace always shines bright, particularly in the darkness. And it, it shines bright for us. You shall not murder. And when we do, whether we do it with our tongues, we do it with our looks, we do it with our thoughts, when we do, if we are quick to humble ourselves and acknowledge, to confess, he is faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us from all unrighteousness. Now, you might think, and I have heard this before, I've heard folks say, yeah, Jesus could keep this command, but I'm not Jesus. (laughs) How can you expect me to in the world I live in? What they're really saying is, don't hold me to biblical standards. That's what they're saying. Don't hold me to biblical standards. Oh, but, but I will. Because... You are made in the image of God. And because you are made in the image of God, his spirit. His spirit dwells in you if you've come to put your faith in Christ. And you are no longer a slave to sin. You've been transformed. You're a new creation in Christ. You don't have a heart of stone. You have a heart of flesh now. And God has written his law on your heart. And grace is available. Grace, unending grace. Grace that you can't tap into to enough to, to bring out that grace without and say, oh, it's been depleted. There's not enough grace. There is, there is grace unending. And grace to live and to follow these commandments. As you are here this morning and you are listening to these words and, and maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you have never put your trust in him for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins. And and you are aware that you do murder in the heart. Listen, the, the sad and frightening warning here is you will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh, may you be rescued from that. May, may you understand, may God open your heart and eyes this morning to the grace he offers you that you don't have to anticipate that future, but you have a destiny, a future that you can have in Christ whose forgiveness is offered freely. You can't obey that command. You can be self-controlled because Jesus has shown us the way. Now, just Three, three verses that I want to leave you with to help you manage your heart when you are tempted in these situations. And guaranteed, if not today, by tomorrow, you will be tempted in some way to be angry and to do one of these things in your heart. So if you are offended, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ 
forgave you. So, you want to you have a, a biblical weapon to fight against this temptation? Right here. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. And if, if you're offended, well, in Matthew, what we just said, Matthew 5, 29 through 25, Jesus gives us a way. Go. Go make it right. Talk it out. Again, you may not be in agreement, but you don't have to be enemies. And then thirdly, Proverbs 4.23, one of my favorite passages. And I'm quoting the the NIV because I like the way it reads. It says, above all else, above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Brothers and sisters, these commandments have been given to us. Because God loves us. And he wants to protect us from the ravages of sin. And he wants to show us who he is through these commandments. He wants to reveal how grace-filled and patient and, and loving and kind he is. Because these commandments have revealed our inability to keep them. And yet God sent his son so that we could be freed from the slavery of sin and freed to, to live as God intended, to live as image bearers of this glorious God we serve. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us hope in Christ. Because when we hear words like this, Lord, you know our hearts can be discouraged because we do fail time and again at attempting to keep your commands. And yet, you are faithful. Your spirit dwells in us. And you have given us the power to say no to sin and yes to God. And may that, may that reminder dwell in every heart here today as these dear folks leave. Oh, Lord, thank you for all that you've done in Christ's name. Amen.